Matthew, Mark, and Luke all wrote a gospel. They all wrote an account of the history of the life of Jesus. And each one of them chose to include the account that I'm going to read to you in a moment from the Gospel of Luke. And all three of them, even though they wrote in different ways, some more topical, some more chronological, some along themes, all chose to place this story in the same point in their gospel. Each and every gospel in the New Testament is a piece of literature that was written by a person for a reason. And so as we open up God's Word today, I will remind you of that. And even the very placing of this account where it is right after the time when Jesus identified childlike faith as the kind of faith that saves, we're going to see how Jesus then encounters somebody who approaches him with anything but childlike faith. And so if you, the congregation, would look down at your copy of God's Word and follow along as I read Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 30. Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 30. This is God's Word. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left all and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God 
who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus is presenting the true gospel. There is nothing more important to understand than the gospel. The gospel is the most important truth that we proclaim at this church or in any true church. And Jesus came not only to proclaim the gospel, but to explain the gospel. And Jesus presents to this particular individual in this account a clear, vivid, compelling, challenging, paradigm-shifting, category-destroying explanation of the gospel. It's the true gospel for the self-righteous. And one of the things that's so compelling about reading the Gospels is to read the way that Jesus presents the Gospel to different kinds of people. Jesus doesn't have a tract. (laughs) Jesus doesn't have a shtick that He delivers whenever He encounters somebody. Instead, He gets to understand where that person is and he delivers to that person a clear and personal application of the truth of the gospel. And for some, it attacks their self-righteousness and for others, it rescues them from self-condemnation. This is the true gospel for the self-righteous. At other points in Luke, He describes Jesus' encounter with people when He gives them the true gospel for the self-destructive. You see, earlier on, He gives that amazing account of the tax collector and the Pharisee, and we don't have time this morning, of course, to unpack that in any kind of detail, but that tax collector comes into the temple and into the presence of the Lord and reveals the condition that he was in, and it is the opposite to what we see presented here by this rich ruler. Jesus interacts very differently with the woman who was caught in adultery, or the Samaritan woman, or the woman who anoints him, or the woman who had the bleeding problem very differently than he interacts with self-righteous, rich, young rulers. So, let's approach this text together with the understanding of the context of who Jesus is speaking to and what his intentions are. There is an urgency and an intensity in this dialogue. You see, it's different than earlier when the lawyer approaches Jesus and he does so with an attitude of superiority. He does so in order to trap Jesus. There isn't any indication that's what's happening here. In fact, if anything, this 
man appears to be coming to Jesus with a genuine sense of urgency, a genuine humility, a genuine willingness to be seen in the light of day, going to Jesus, presenting himself on his knees to get from Jesus the answers that he's looking for. He's not like Nicodemus, who John talks about, who meets Jesus in a dark alley at night. Nicodemus is like the rich old ruler. This is a rich young man who comes to Jesus in broad daylight. He has everything that everybody else wants. He has wealth and he has power. He has youth and he has righteousness. If you were to start a new Netflix series called The Young and the Righteous, he could star. He's also wise, you know, he, he understands that his youth is going to fade, that his wealth could fail, and that everybody at some point needs to secure their own eternal destiny. And I think what you see presented here in this man is somebody who has everything except what really matters. He, he has everything except the one thing that everyone's looking for, and that is security. He has no assurance. And so he comes to Jesus looking for that. And what I want to show you this morning is that any true gospel is always going to present and reveal what you have, what you lack, and who can save. What you have, what you lack, and who can save. Let's begin by looking at the first one, and that is what you lack. You see, it begins here that the ruler comes to him and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life was something that the old covenant Jews understood. This person was an expert in the old covenant, in the old testament. He would have known Job 19, 25 and 26 that says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last day He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. He knew there was going to be a resurrection, a new heavens, a new earth, that the kingdom of God would come, and He wanted to be part of it. But notice His question. There's so much revealed in the nature of His question. Listen to people's questions because it reveals so much about what's going on inside their mind. He says, what must I do to inherit? You don't have to do anything to inherit. You inherit because you're in the family. Nobody sits down to write a will and they say, I wish that the beneficiaries of my estate will include my family so long as they do the following things. Now, I know there are some children that have behaved in such a way that maybe the money needs to be put in a trust and it needs to be given to them upon them meeting certain qualifications. So my illustration breaks down at some point, but don't press it. We're not, this is not a seminar on wills and trusts. What I'm saying is that the principle is that you don't have to do anything to inherit, but his mindset was, I must have to do something to warrant 
the eternal life. Because that's how he thought. He thought in terms of what he could do, what he could perform. And Jesus says to him, I'm not going to address your question about what you need to do. I'm going to attack the very foundation of your entire argument because it began with something that you might have thought was a compliment, but it actually exposed your ignorance because he says, why do you call me good? It's a word that means perfectly good, intrinsically good. This man is making a truth claim about Jesus And Jesus is going to make an evaluation of the claim. He's not going to deny that he's good. He's going to deny that the man has any idea what it means to be good. When he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He is saying to this man, you don't know what you're talking about. You're judging me by your standard of goodness. You want to do something to inherit eternal life because you think you can. And you call me good because you've determined that I'm good. Well, listen, you don't decide whether or not I'm good. I am good independent from your evaluation of my goodness. He says, let's see if you can handle the truth about goodness. You want to talk about goodness, do you? Let's talk about goodness. And so he says to him, not only is no one good except God alone, but this issue of goodness can be settled in verse 20 by the statement, you know the commandments. If you want to talk about what it means to be good, you know the law. He says, do not commit adultery, do not murder Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Now you're thinking, why did he put them in that order? I don't know. Why didn't he mention all ten? I don't know. Stop asking those questions. But he went with commandment six, seven, eight, nine, and five. And no doubt this man would have been somewhat aware of Jesus' teaching because Jesus had been around for quite a while, enough that his reputation had spread, enough that this man was willing to go and meet with him. He would have known Jesus' teaching that it's not just adultery, but lust in your heart. It's not just murder, but hate. He knows that you can't bear false witness by conspiring against people to get an advantage. He knows that He wasn't allowed to take all of his money and put it in some irrevocable trust that would somehow be used to benefit the synagogue later, but in the meantime, he could draw off of it and therefore give nothing to his parents and thereby dishonor them. This man knew all the rules. In fact, when Jesus gives these laws and he gives these commandments, it was in a public setting. Moments earlier, he had rebuked the disciples for holding back the little children from coming to him. He may have still been surrounded by the little children, by the ones whom he said have a faith, a childlike faith. He wasn't extolling the children and saying they are in the kingdom, or that the children themselves had faith, but it was a childlike faith that allowed one to be in the kingdom. People were listening, and so when this man heard Jesus 
mentioned these commandments, their initial thought would have been, ah, Jesus is affirming this man. He is saying these are the things you need to do to have eternal life. And this man had done them. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, he had done them. He was not an adulterer. He was not a murderer. He was not the kind of person who stole. In fact, he wasn't even the kind of person who would go to court and say something about somebody else in order to advantage himself. And he honored his father and mother. He was rich, and he came by it honestly. He was a ruler, the other texts tell us as well, which means he was a religious ruler in the synagogue. He was young, we are told, in the other accounts. So here's a man who is wealthy and young and righteous. He was the ultimate combination of everything that the old covenant Jew would look to and aspire to. He was the ultimate candidate for the kingdom. And on top of it all, he was wise and he was humble and he acknowledged that Jesus was good. And Jesus lets him go right down that path. He sets him up perfectly. And the man responds in exactly the way that you would expect him to. He says, all these, all these commandments I have kept from my youth. This is what he brings to the table. This is his view of goodness. This is his view of righteousness. And I don't want you to think that he would have said this with some sort of glib confidence. If anything, it was with a condescending attitude as if to say, of course I've done that. I've done that from my youth. Look at me. I'm a ruler in the synagogue and I'm barely old enough to be allowed to read the Torah in the synagogue. I'm rich, which means God must be blessing me. I'm righteous because I've done everything that the commandments have required. Why are you hitting me up with this kindergarten level expectation? Of course I've done all that. I've done them from my youth and I'm still young. Jesus is about to reveal he hasn't kept the spirit of the law since he got up that morning. But this is what you have. This is what some of you have. You're righteous. You're obedient. Been in church since you were a baby. You've got all the awards and all the accolades and all the accomplishments. You followed all the rules. Stayed inside the lanes. Never been trouble to anyone. That's why it's so hard for you to understand why we keep talking about the gospel. Because it doesn't really apply to you. You followed all these things. You've done all these things. You've never struggled with that. It's a natural thing for you. Well, I hope if that's you this morning that you find yourself to some degree in the testimony of this man. And if you realize that you've been holding on to that righteousness as your assurance for salvation that today would be the day when your categories are blown apart by what Jesus says. Because here's the next part, what you lack. He says in verse 22, Then Jesus, when He heard this, said to him, One thing you still lack. One thing. 
Let's just presume for a moment that he's good on commandment 6, 7, 8, 9, 5. That leaves 1, 2, 3, 4, 10. Let's take them in reverse. Number 10 is you're not supposed to covet. Well, if you're rich, you don't covet, not normally. You don't look at someone else's house and wish you had it because you just go and buy one that's better. Let's assume he's good on the coveting. You go back to number four. Let's assume that because he's a ruler in the synagogue, he, that he honors the Sabbath day. Not only does he honor the Sabbath day, but he gets really upset with people who don't honor the Sabbath day. Let's, let's give him the benefit of the doubt on that one. That would be like me saying to you, as a general rule, I don't skip church on Sunday. And you'd be like, well, yeah, that's because you're paid to be here. So is he. Now, of course, a man who is righteous like that would never violate the third commandment, which is to use the Lord's name in vain. So let's put him up as being good on three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. That only leaves two. Even if he was good eight out of ten, I mean, that's like a solid B in most religions. But this guy comes in saying, I'm good across the board. The second commandment is to have no idols. Now, as much as we might be tempted to say that perhaps the man's wealth was his idol, his possessions were his idols, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt that he might be a righteous, rich man who had these things and they weren't an idol for him. If I can just insert a footnote here, it is very tempting, it's been my observation, for pastors to approach this text as somehow a biblical lesson on money. That somehow from here I'm supposed to derive some life principles about your money and generosity. And I'm supposed to make all of you wealthy people feel like you're not giving enough. And I'm supposed to make all of you poor people feel like if the wealthy people were giving more, your life would be easier. Or maybe you're more righteous because you're not wealthy. Maybe you're thinking, I love the passage of the rich young ruler because that guy gets slammed because you know what, I'm pretty sick of all these rich people anyway. I'm glad I'm not one of them. You know, Jesus does not consistently deal with rich people the same way. In a few moments, we're going to see Zacchaeus. He gives away half of his wealth, not all of it. Now, you're all familiar with that one. It's kind of an easy one. But let me suggest that maybe there's another person here in the Gospel of Luke that you hadn't thought of. If it weren't for a wealthy patron providing the resources for this book to be written, we wouldn't have it on a human level. His name is Theophilus. He is greeted at the very beginning of this two-part volume that was written by Luke, Luke and Acts. And Luke and Acts were written for and dedicated to a man named Theophilus. We don't even know for sure if he was a Christian. We do know that he was wealthy because he was able to provide the resources to get the work published. Now, this is not a condemnation against the rich. So if you can remove that from your thinking, we can more clearly see what's really going on here. And I believe Jesus is getting at the root of it when he says the one thing you lack is that you're in violation of the first commandment. You have another God. And that God is your image, your righteousness, your wealth, your position, your youth, and yourself. So he says to him, sell all that you have. Liquidate your assets. He was probably both cash rich and asset rich. Liquidate and distribute to the poor, and you will have, in exchange for this, treasure in heaven. 
That's a way of saying true eternal security. Even in the Old Covenant, it was not taught that you were going to go to heaven. It was taught that heaven was going to come to you. The new heavens, the new earth, the resurrection. But your wealth and what you have for your security would be stored up for you in the stronghold of heaven where moth and rust and thief could not get at it. He is saying exchange all of your security that's down here for a security that's eternal. Exchange the worship of everything that you've accomplished here for the worship of God in the heavens. And come, follow me. Not your own path, not your own religion. Follow me. He lays out for him the full practical extension of the law. He covers all the Ten Commandments by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Deny yourself and follow me. Do it all. You want to talk about good? Because you think you're good? That's what good looks like. You want to talk about obeying the commandments? That's what obeying the commandments looks like. Are you ready? Let's go. You see, when somebody comes to Jesus thinking that they have self-righteously obeyed the law, Jesus says, if law is what you want, law is what you get. And He heaps the law upon them. Brothers and sisters, this is all law that He's heaping upon the man. The gospel is not deny yourself and follow me. That's an extension of the confrontation between Jesus and this man. You see, he can't follow him on his own strength either. Any more than he could give up everything that was indication of his self-righteousness. Verse 23, but when he heard these things, when he heard these things. What are these things? These things are the teaching of Jesus. And it's so brilliant. Jesus says, this is what you lack. And the way you address what you lack is by taking away even what you have. Only Jesus could set up an evangelistic encounter where he says that you're lacking something and therefore you must subtract. You're missing something, so something has to go. If you're missing something in your universe of self-righteousness and something has to go, what could it be? He says you have to subtract in order to address your deficit. And what you have to subtract, what you have to discard, what you have to throw away is the fig leaf of your self-righteous accomplishments. And upon hearing this, he became very sad. That translation is very sad. That's an exceedingly inadequate way of presenting what happened here. That phrase, very sad, is the same word that is used in the other Gospels to describe what Jesus was enduring in the Garden of Gethsemane as He was contemplating being separated from His Father. 
he became utterly distraught. He was as crushed at the thought of giving up his wealth and everything that it symbolized as Jesus was at the thought of being forsaken by his Father. And he was exceedingly crushed because he was extremely rich. He was exceedingly sad because he was exceedingly rich. The connection to the sadness is the wealth, not the idea of having to follow Jesus. When does wealth become the lead weight that pulls you to the bottom? When it becomes the God you will not forsake? Wealth itself is not inherently the problem. He didn't want to give up his followers to follow Jesus. That takes the power of the Holy Spirit And he was sweating drops of blood at the thought of exchanging his filthy rags for the spotless robes of Christ. Now remember, this man's wealth was part of the reward program that proved his righteousness. And to remove the wealth, to take that away, was to strip him naked of all the indications of his righteousness, of all of his public recognition. And if you want to heighten the drama for a moment, just consider what's going on in his mind right now. He's thinking to Jesus, who are you to expect that of me? I came to you. You're nothing. You're an uneducated, poor, itinerant rabbi who does magic tricks. And you're an illegitimate child of sinners from a nowhere town. In Galilee. Follow you? I spit on you. That's what he's thinking. He didn't go away sad because Jesus asked too much. He went away exceedingly crushed because this person had the audacity to suggest that what he was doing for his own salvation wasn't adequate and somehow this guy knew more. You see, Jesus was everything he wasn't. And everybody thought this guy had it together because of what he had, where he served, what he'd done, and where he came from. So the paradox is what is so shattering, not only to this man, but to everyone who is watching. Because it destroyed what everybody thought you had to do in order to have eternal life. It was bad enough that Jesus is blessing these children and saying that you have to have a childlike faith. That doesn't take much. And now the person who's going to come in and save the day and rescue everybody from Jesus' confusing teaching on the matter is sent away angry 
Because Jesus has revealed to him what the true gospel is. That's why we need the third point, which is who can really save? Look what he says, verse 22. Then, when Jesus... I'm sorry, I'm going back. Verse 24, who can save? He says in verse 24, Jesus seeing, and there's no indication that in the original text the part about him being sad is there. So it just says, and Jesus seeing said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. That's where eternal life is going to be lived. Your eternal life is lived in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. He says how difficult it is for somebody who has wealth, especially if that wealth is their God, to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Literally. I know that there was a time where certain preachers would say, well, this doesn't really mean a camel and a needle. It really means the needle gate. What it means is that the camel can only go through that gate if you take everything off the camel. If you unburden the camel. And if the camel goes down on its knees and is pulled through the little gate, therefore, you need to lay your burdens down. And you need to get rid of your burden of sin. And you need to get down on your knees. And you need to humble yourself to go through the gate. It's not what that means. Stop it. Literally means a camel. Literally means a needle. Go, try to put one through it. It's impossible. And everybody knew what he meant. And so verse 26, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Who? It's the right question. But he said, what's, what is impossible with man is possible with God. That's the gospel. In contrast to the commandments, and the call to follow, is this. He says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. By grace, you can be saved. You can overcome the power that wealth and self-righteousness has. Then you can follow, but not in your own strength because you've chosen to, because you've said, got it. Drop this, follow you. No. You can follow because it's possible with God and the power of the Holy Spirit to regenerate your soul and to cause you to obey and to follow and to want to. It's by grace and no other means. Every other approach is impossible. We saw that read to you earlier in Romans 2. The law is going to judge you. If you choose law, you have to choose it perfectly and follow it perfectly. Every single day of your life. And no one can do that. Therefore, it is impossible with man. But what is possible with God is that Because of Christ's perfect, sinless righteousness, His act of obedience can be given to you so that 
when you stand before the Lord, you are judged according to works of the law. But thankfully, they've all been accomplished perfectly by somebody else. And your self-righteous robes with all the ribbons and medals that you've accumulated have been discarded as filthy rags in exchange for the glorious robe of Christ's righteousness. Is God's law still in effect? Yes. Do you have to obey it perfectly to be in His presence? Yes. But praise be to God that somebody came to do that for you. And so he says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Same thing said to Jesus' mother Mary in Luke 1.37. Now there's a response from Peter. Of course there's a response from Peter. It wouldn't be a gospel narrative if there wasn't a response from Peter. Peter, never hesitant to speak his mind, decides to offer a point of clarification. Just in case Jesus hadn't noticed, he says, see? All the other disciples are like, oh no. Every time. But this is good, this is good. See? We've left our, it doesn't say homes in the original, we've left We've left our own and followed you. (laughs) And we've done this. Jesus in His kindness says to him, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more than this. Meaning blessings beyond measure in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Yes, by the power of God you have followed. Someday you will understand in more complete terms exactly what that means and how you're able to, but for now remember that whatever you've given up, you're going to get blessings beyond measure in this life and in the life to come. Back to the very topic of conversation that began this whole dialogue, eternal life. Eternal life started the conversation back in verse 18, and Jesus says, don't worry about what you've left behind. Whatever you give up to receive the free gift of salvation through Christ alone, whatever you've given up is worthless in comparison. And whatever He allows you to keep is yours as a blessing from Him to be used for His glory and honor and for the good those who are around you for his own joy, glory, and honor forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for this amazing truth, for the clarity of it, the way that you dismantle the self-righteous and at the same time receive with such gentleness those who come to You broken. Oh, the bruised reed, the smoldering wick, the one here today who knows their shame. May they have heard today 
that the righteous ones that they think are somehow at the front of the line are the very ones for whom you say the first will be last and the last will be first. The ones who think they have it all together. The ones who are first class. The ones who get priority. The ones in the express line are the very ones who are completely deceived about what you ask of us and the ones who think that they could never possibly be accepted based on the burdens that they carry are the ones who will hear from you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Father, give rest to the righteous today and rest to the weary for your glory and honor and eternal joy. Amen.